Welcome to this Regeneron-sponsored audio series, which promises to be a very engaging discussion about the importance of early cholesterol screening in children. I'm Dr. Don Wilson. I'm a pediatric endocrinologist, but for the last 20 years of my career, I've devoted it to looking at cardiovascular risk factors and trying to keep children healthy. I'm currently in the Department of Pediatrics at Cook Children's Hospital and Medical Center in Fort Worth, Texas. And I'm Dr. Jason Turk. I'm a practicing general pediatrician in North Texas, also with the Cook Children's Healthcare System. Uh, I'm the past chair of the Texas Public Health Coalition and past president of the Texas Pediatric Society, and I'm very pleased to be with Dr. Wilson. Dr. Turk, I'm delighted to have you. I think you bring a very important perspective to this conversation. So let's kick things off by providing our listeners with a brief overview of familial hypercholesterolemia. You'll also hear us refer to this as FH. Dr. Kirk, please begin. Well, familial hypercholesterolemia is a genetic lipid disorder, um, and it's inherited mainly in an autosomal codominant fashion. It's characterized by higher than normal circulating levels of LDL cholesterol from birth, and it is also unfortunately associated with accelerated premature atherosclerosis uh, that can then ultimately lead to cardiovascular events that we all want to try to avoid. It exists in both a heterozygous and homozygous form, the heterozygous form is much more prevalent. One out of 250 individuals in the United States have the heterozygous form of FH. And that is characterized by a two to three fold increase in LDL cholesterol levels. The homozygous form, which is much more rare, about one out of 250,000 individuals, is characterized by very high levels of LDL cholesterol. And you're talking about levels over 400 uh, milligrams per deciliter starting from childhood. And while Individuals with a heterozygous form may achieve reasonable target levels of LDL cholesterol with available therapies. Typically, the ones with the homozygous form are not going to be able to achieve normal levels, even with appropriate therapies. Now, Dr. Wilson, you're a pediatric endocrinologist, and, and, and you're at the bottom of a huge funnel, uh, and so you see a whole lot of these kids. Can you tell us a little bit more about what your experience is with the varying severity of familial hypercholesterolemia that you see in your practice. Yeah, I want to go back to one thing that you said very nicely, and that is that heterogeneous form, so one affected allele, causes this disease, but it's very common, one in 200 to 250. Would you care to guess, Dr. Turk, how frequent that is in terms of births per hour? I'm sure you've worked that one out, and I have not, so go ahead and let us know. Yeah, so it's one per minute. So let's do the math, 60 per hour, and you can do the math per day, per uh, week, per month. This is a very common condition. So if those of you who are listening are not familiar with this condition and don't think that these kids exist in your practice, you're very much misinformed. And not only that, uh, since it's an autosomal codominant condition, about half the children in the family and certainly one of the parents are going to have this disease. So this is a very common thing that we need to start paying attention to in our practices. Admittedly, as uh, Dr. Turk said, the homozygous form, so now you have two affected alleles, are gonna be about one in 300,000. But in every community that I've been in, there have been two or three of these homozygous children, and it's a very severe form. So let's talk a little bit about what this does. Heterozygous FH means you have one affected allele, so it's going to interfere with reprocessing or the liver uptake of cholesterol. Unfortunately, that cholesterol then stays in your bloodstream, and over the next 20 or 30 years is enough to occlude arteries. So you're basically going to be vulnerable to having 
ischemic episodes of the heart or the brain. So you're going to have a heart attack or stroke. You can actually prevent these events, but you have to identify children and start interventions very early in the process. On the other hand, the homozygous disease is kind of the worst of the worst. When you have two affected alleles, the levels of cholesterol are going to be severely elevated. So typically we talk about heterozygous FH as being a persistently elevated LDL cholesterol level greater than 160 milligram per deciliter after you've eliminated secondary causes for high cholesterol. And you've tried some type of modification of the diet, increased physical activities, uh, weight reduction if that's necessary. On the other hand, if you're really thinking about homozygous disease, that's going to be 400 milligram per deciliter or higher. So you see right away this is why homozygous disease is so problematic. So Dr. Turk, let's talk a little bit about the role of pediatricians in the diagnosis of FH. What's been your experience or what do you think is kind of the general culture amongst general pediatricians? Well, I think the first thing we need to acknowledge and, and level set is the fact that we've had universal lipid screening recommendations for quite a long time. And these recommendations have come to us from the National Heart Lung Blood Institute of the NIH, the AAP, the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, and the National Lipid Association. Um, and so we've had this recommendation now for at least a decade, and, and, and the guidelines have, are pretty straightforward. We need to be um, doing the screening when it's recommended, which is for otherwise healthy children with no known family history, nine to 11 years of age. And screening in this age group enables uh, the, the best way to discern between those with and without familial hypercholesterolemia and avoids the confounding changes that may occur during puberty in which you might have a, uh, a, a, a temporal reduction in LDL cholesterol. Unfortunately, not enough of our patients who are in the recommendation uh, cohort are being properly screened. Uh, the results from numerous surveys uh, have uh, really underscored the um, suboptimal performance that we have uh, in screening kids. There was uh, a recent study that was published uh, based upon claims data involving children between the ages of two and 18 years who had more than three years of continuous insurance coverage. And it found that of the eligible healthy children, 82.5% of them did not receive appropriate screening. And so we really do have great opportunities for improvement here. But the burden of early diagnosis of this condition really does rest upon us because we are the physicians that are seeing these patients and we're in the prevention of bad things business in pediatrics. And what we do now can really affect the arc of our patients' lives in a meaningful way with respect to this condition. Can you tell us a little bit more about what your experience is, uh, Dr. Wilson, with interfacing with pediatricians uh, who have concerns about familial hypercholesterolemia uh, and those patients that, that, that can refer to you? I think most of our listeners would agree that the best time to prevent diseases is before they actually occur. That's true of immunizations, it's true of diabetes, and it's certainly true of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. I think we have a unique opportunity here to change the paradigm going forward because, just as a reminder, cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of morbidity and premature mortality in the United States and the entire world. So as Dr. Turk reminded us that that recommendation in the United States is for routine testing, no questions asked, at age somewhere between 9 and 11. Of interest, the European Atherosclerosis Society has now, as of this year, gone on record as saying that that should be a worldwide 
recommendation for universal screening, but they recognize that in the absence of physical findings for a pertinent family history, you're gonna miss these kids if we don't pick them up early. But I think part of our job is actually giving families and children appropriate risk assessment. On the other hand, if they do have an informative family history so that one or both of the parents are taking lipid-lowering medication or they know that they have hypercholesterolemia, or there is a family member who unfortunately has had a fatal or non-fatal event prior to the age of 55 in men or 65 in women, or children who either have a high-risk condition like congenital heart disease, diabetes, or they may not have a known history. So those children who are adopted, for example, the age to start tracking those kids or testing them is age two. Yes, Dr. Wilson, I, I think it's really important to remind uh, our, our pediatric health clinicians that we need to be paying attention to the family history of our of our patients. And if there is a known family history of early onset uh, coronary artery disease, whether it be angina or myocardial infarction or, or, or stroke, and or if there is a parent that is known to have a total cholesterol that's greater than 240, um, or there are other underlying cardiovascular risk factors, such as diabetes or congenital heart disease, um, then we need to make sure we're screening our patients beginning at age two uh, and making sure we don't miss that uh, important population because uh, they have obviously different risk factors than the ones that we're universally screening beginning at nine. So that also remain, reminds me that if a child at age 10 has universal screening and turns up with what looks to be FH, then please be mindful that the other children in the family should be screened even down to the age of two. Absolutely. So it's, it's sort of like the canary in the coal mine. Uh, if you find one of them, you need to make sure that you're uh, testing all the other first degree relatives to make sure that we're not missing other potential problems. So that's kind of the, the backdrop. Now, that's all well and good because we sort of tell busy, very busy, the general pediatricians what they can or should be doing. I think most of them agree that these are all good things. Now the question, Dr. Turk, you have a very busy, successful practice here in the Fort Worth area. How do you make that work? What are the barriers to keep you from doing that? Well, I, I think that if there is a practice that has not been screening according to the current recommendations and is is looking at the logistics and practicalities of getting that uh, started, there may be certain perceptions of barriers or even real barriers that, that they may have to getting uh, the universal screening accomplished. We would prefer to get this done at the point of care in our offices because the patients are there and that's the best time to get it done. And so having the capacity and the capability to provide that screening uh, in the office at the time of the routine uh, well check visits is going to give you the biggest bang for your buck. Uh, there may be perceptions that uh, payment for the service is not going to be appropriate. I can only share my personal experience that in my area, payment has been appropriate for the service I'm providing and doing these, these screenings for my patients. And then there also might be some perception of pushback on the part of our families. But I would say you take a lesson from how we accomplish getting vaccinations done. And if you if you take a presumptive approach like this is something your child is due for. We need to do this to make sure that your child is uh, free of this particular condition. Um, and it's a part of a routine process here at nine or 10 or 11 years of age. Then I've not had a significant amount of hesitancy in proceeding with that. I think you're going to avoid a lot of 
difficulties in compliance. Uh, if you are able to get the screening done in the office, you can provide the information to the family while they're there and then execute uh, secondary referrals if necessary. If you rely upon sending the patient to uh, an outside lab, then you have to trust that the family is going to follow through with that. And it's been my experience that that doesn't always happen as well. So uh, I think it's a matter of deciding this is a priority. Yes, our periodicity schedule and all the things that we need to accomplish is very thick. But for me, this is something that I get done at the very end of the visit. Uh, and then if there are actionable information that I need to uh, go back to the family on, then I'll circle back around to them and let them know what needs to be done. This might be an appropriate time for me to thank all of you who do primary care because I know how hard you work. If you don't identify the patients, we have no opportunity really for early intervention. And we miss a great opportunity here. So my hat's off to all of you. But I, I realize that in the, in the course of a day, there's a lot of moving parts. I think if groups of uh, pediatricians sat down and thought about this, they could almost automate this in their offices as part of the process, just like you do with immunizations. You know, all the things that you have to get done, how are you going to get them done? It might be a good time to remind our listeners, though, of a couple of things. One is that it's not necessary to fast these children. In fact, it's a barrier in my mind if you ask the people to fast or ask the children to fast, because now the child has to take off school or be late. The parents have to take off work or be delayed in getting to work. And that's just a barrier. So for screening purposes, it's not necessary. We, we routinely do this in, in our patients in a non fasting state. And we understand that, that if there is an abnormality with the non-fasting screen that we're doing, then it's simply a matter of scheduling them to come back in for nurses visit when it's convenient for them to do so to get a fasting level done. Just as a reminder to our listener, the primary purpose for cholesterol screening is looking for FH. You may find other things, but our primary purpose is looking at this very common condition that we can absolutely change the life of people uh, by early screening. Dr. Turk, even if you believe in the concept, how do you integrate that with all the litany of things that we've asked you to do uh, in that schedule of events? Well, it's a very important question to ask and something that's going to resonate with most pediatricians because a lot is expected of us uh, in doing the preventive care visits. And if you look at the periodicity schedule on each one of those visits, it's pretty extensive. And we all do the very best we can, um, but we oftentimes don't have enough time. And so um, it is a challenge overall. But when it comes to something like universal lipid screening, uh, that's something that I think is fairly easily implementable because it's going to be a standard that you're going to be doing for all of those patients when they come in for those visits. The way I accomplish it is that uh, I will conduct the well-child visit among the orders I have for that particular age. In uh, my order set is uh, point of care lipid screening. We uh, have the nurse come in or medical assistant come in and do the capillary stick, collect the blood specimen. We run the test in our office. We have a result within five to seven minutes. Um, and if the family wishes to wait for it, they may. And if they don't want to wait for it, we can communicate with them uh, after the fact uh, via our portal messaging system. Uh, usually the, the news is good. Hey, your lipids were fine. Uh, no big deal. We'll uh, do that again when you come back and see us when you're 17, 18 years of age. Um, and if there is something actionable, then we will proceed accordingly with getting a fasting lipid uh, if it was a non-fasting specimen, which most of the time they are when they come in for well checks. Terrific. Well, 
you know, you've, I think, given some of our listeners some ideas about how they may also implement this in their own practices. It seems to me when you work in a group setting, you have a lot of other people that can also reinforce that message. So your nurse assistant or your nurse, I think if we talk in a unified voice, people, parents in particular, know what to anticipate next visit. They walk away with the assurance that you're actually doing things in a prospective way that will keep their kids healthy. I think they actually appreciate you taking the time and effort to do that. Let me thank the uh, listeners for their participation in this audio series episode sponsored by Regeneron. We hope you enjoyed this discussion as much as Dr. Turk and I did. So we have two more episodes available in this audio series on the importance of early FH diagnosis and understanding homozygous guidelines. Be sure to listen to these episodes as well. On behalf of Dr. Turk, myself, thanks for joining us.